All right, well, you guys have been a patient crew. You know, it's been cubits and furniture and garments of clothing and, you know, tents and priests and blood and sacrifices and oil and this whole scene. And not that um, we're going to leave necessarily all of that stuff, but it, it will start to take a little bit of it. We're going to start to go at a bit of a different pace through this book. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen as we've been going through Exodus is the beautiful stuff that's beyond the surface when you just read this at a surface level. You know, uh, many of these chapters, if you're just reading them, I would say that it's, like, it's, it's almost like, yeah, I'm ready for a nap. I'm ready to go to sleep. And the beauty of it's been is that we have seen that these things point us to Jesus Christ time and time again. Haven't we seen that through the book of Exodus? And the crazy thing is when you think about it, the children of Israel did not see that. To them, it was this establishment of worship, but they did not see how all of these things were pointing them uh, necessarily to the one who was to come. And we can see that now, uh, the symbolism as we read these things, that it is pointing square at Jesus Christ. And I would say the reason for that is this, is that these things that we have been studying and seeing about Jesus that are deeper, symbolic typology that is hidden in behind all the surface, really concerns the heirs of salvation, the church. And we're going to, you know, continue to look at the tabernacle and as it points to Jesus. And now we come to Exodus chapter 30. This is a great chapter on worship. And it starts by introducing to us another piece of furniture. <laughs> so here we go. The golden altar of incense. Let's read it. Verse, thir- uh, cha- verse 1 of chapter 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. And you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. You know what a cubit is now, right? 18 inches. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So this altar of incense, what I'm going to tell you right off the hop here, is this speaks of the place of prayer. It was this small square table, 18 inches by 18 inches. It was three feet tall. It had four horns on each corner on the tops of it. And this table we're going to read stood before uh, the veil of the most holy place. So this is a new piece of furniture in there. We've seen as you come into the holy place, we have the table of showbread on the right, which points us to Jesus Christ. We have on the left side, the great golden candlestick. That speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit shining light on Jesus. There as you go past those things before the veil was this place of prayer where you would stop and pray. And then in uh, to the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of our Father who is in heaven, okay? And on this little altar that was just outside the veil, the priest would burn incense to the Lord. Verse 3 says, You shall overlay it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So even though here's this small altar. I mean imagine in your mind's eye 18 by 18 inches. Three feet high. It's this tiny thing covered in gold. And it's not to be touched by human hands. Even this little altar is to have poles inserted into it when it's time to pack up the tabernacle. And it is to be borne. It is to be carried upon the shoulders of the priest. Verse 6. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony. Where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So, daily, in the morning, and in the evening, when Aaron came into the tabernacle or whichever priest was on duty and they were going to trim and dress the lamps and put oil in them and prep them at the same time after they had done that, they were to go to this altar and they were to burn 
in the presence of the Lord incense on this altar. Uh, morning and evening it was burned. Now David said this in Psalm 141 verse 2. He said let my prayer be like incense before you. You know, when you flip to Revelation and you go through Revelation chapter 5, uh, it tells us in verse 8 that the 24 elders, this, this great scene in heaven, that, that stand before the throne of God, bring before him golden bowls of incense. And the Bible says that they are the prayers of the saints that are poured out before God. So as we talk about this little altar of incense, it, it, it's, so, it's so small just this little piece of furniture, but it speaks to us of the place of prayer. It was not a place where blood was to be shed. It was not a place where drinks were to be poured out. It was not a place to offer grain, okay? It was not a place where the priest was to offer. Outside, blood was shed. Outside, the priest washed. Elsewhere, he offered fellowship offerings to God. This little altar where the incense was burned was to be a place of prayer. It was to be the place where the priest would pour out his heart to God on behalf of the people. And it, it was just, you know, this little wooden altar covered with gold. Luke tells us about this altar. He says that on a certain day, there was a certain man who was chosen by lot to go in and to burn incense on it. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. You know the story. He was, he was chosen by Lot for 400 years. It, God had been silent. He had not spoken to the, the children of Israel. And Zechariah was chosen. He went in uh, to the temple. And before this altar of incense burning, he began to pour out his heart to God. And the Bible tells us that all of a sudden, Zechariah realized he wasn't alone. That there with him was an angel. And the angel prophesied that his barren wife, Elizabeth, uh, would conceive a child. And that this little child would be the voice of one who would cry in the wilderness, prepare ye the way for the Lord. John the Baptist. And those words were fulfilled. We know that Zechariah prophesied, uh, fathered John, John the Baptist. This was a place of prayer. But we read here it was only for the priests. It was to be this perpetual thing where the priest did this uh, day and day, uh, day and, and night. Uh, not anyone could come in. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us a story about this same uh, little altar. The account of Uzziah, King Uzziah, who the Bible says that when he was strong and when he became proud in his heart uh, to his destruction, he entered the temple and he took incense to burn on that altar. And, and the Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us that the high priest stood against him. And he said, you shall not do this. This is not your role. And 80 priests joined the high priest. They, they, they joined the high priest to stand against the king. And the king went and he began to, to burn incense on, incense on this. And the Bible says that they saw on his forehead leprosy began to break out. And they grabbed him and they rushed him out of the presence of God before he died in the presence of the Lord. And the Bible says that he remained, King Uzziah remained a leper for the rest of his life. So only the priests offered incense here. And we've been reminded over the last few weeks that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're to offer prayers to the Lord. Uh, Paul said we should pray without ceasing. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our great high priest and he lives forever to intercede for us. Remember this little altar, uh, altar is a pattern of what is in heaven. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has a permanent position before this altar where he offers prayers of intercession on behalf of God's people. We're to be people of prayer. And I think over the hundreds and thousands of years that the church has existed, the wealth and the volume of prayers that have gone up into heaven, the incense that has come before the Lord from the apostles, from the early church, you know, throughout all the different ages of the church, they've ascended into heaven in the name of Jesus. 
See, we go to God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings us into the presence of the Lord and we have this privilege as the people of God. We get to pray. We get to talk to God about everything. Now let me ask you this. Do you have a place where you go to pray? You know, a spot maybe where you lay down on the floor in the presence of God. Do you have a prayer closet? Do you have a special chair in the living room where you sit and spend time in the word and spend time in prayer? Do you have a spot in your yard where you like to sneak out with a lawn chair and sit under the tree or a beach that you love to go to or a place where you like to walk? I mean, in reality, there's nothing special about those particular places except for this fact, that God meets you there. That he meets, you know, it's like this, this little wooden altar and what covers it with gold in a sense is the fact that God meets his people when they pray. When they pour out their hearts to him. And when you come from that place of prayer, you know, I think of the priest coming out of the tabernacle after he's burned this incense. There was a fragrance that was on his life. He smelt like he had been in the presence of God. And it's that way for us too, that when we've been in the place of prayer, the incense of Christ clings to us and we smell like Jesus. The high priest smelt like the presence of God. You know, I I'd imagine the Israelites when he came out after being in this place and doing his thing and spent whatever time doing ministry in the courtyard and then whenever he would leave, I bet there was this thing where people were like, man, I love it when the high priest walks by. He smells like the presence of God. I, I smell the Lord when that man walks by. You know, the best cologne is the cologne of heaven. The, the incense of prayer that sticks to our lives. And when we spend time in prayer, our lives take on the fragrance of Jesus. And so the priests, twice a day, were to go before the Lord. When he lit the lamp, trimmed the lamp, he was to spend time offering prayers. Verse 10 says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of the atonement. He shall make atonement for once and a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So once a year, after Aaron had made that sacrifice out in the courtyard on the, the bronze altar and had collected the blood of the sacrifice, as he is walking into the most holy place where he will present that to the Lord on the Ark of the Covenant, as he walks by this altar of incense with the tip of his finger, he touched those four horns on the corner of this little altar. As a reminder, you know, that as he approached God in prayer, it was by the blood. It was because of the blood of the sacrifice. Th this altar was not the place of sacrifice. This was the place of prayer. But it's the same for us. I mean, when we go to the place of prayer, we, we must always remember that we go on the basis of the blood. That we go on the basis of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. Now verse 11 says, the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. That there be no plague among the people when you, when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 21 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half the shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. This half shekel was a silver shekel. We read elsewhere in scripture. Um, silver in the Bible is the price of redemption. And the Lord is saying this. Everyone who worships me needs to be redeemed. You can't worship me in fact unless you've been redeemed. 
God is to be worshipped and in spirit and truth, Jesus said. And only the, the redeemed can worship him. The, the way is open to all. The Bible says, you know, who, whosoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Whosoever comes through Jesus Christ can worship. Uh, the, Jesus, we know, he paid the price of redemption. You know, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, funny enough. Now, this was a practice that went on annually throughout Israel in their history. The, the practice of paying the temple tax. We even read about it in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 17, it tells us that Jesus came to Capernaum and the collector of the half shekel was cruising around Capernaum and he said to Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the half shekel? And Peter wasn't sure, but he said, yeah, he pays it. <laughs> And when he came to the house, Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 17 tells us, spoke to him first and he said, what do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And Peter said, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a, a hook and take, a, take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. What a great story. Take it and give it to them for me and yourself. You know, what that tells you is that Jesus is a great guy to have around at tax time. <laughs> you know, in Israel, one of the things you do, we didn't do it on our, uh, actually, I don't think we've done it on our last couple trips, but one of the things to do at the Sea of Galilee is to have St. Peter's fish. You know, they bring this fish out to you and it's kind of roasted on a fire. It's a whole fish and you, you pick away, it's, it's tilapia. That's the kind of fi fish it is, St. Peter's fish. And they, they flourish in the Sea of Galilee. And interesting enough, just in my studies this week, came across something interesting about tilapia. Um, when, they are, when, they, when they have young, they carry their young around in their mouth. And they s spit them in and out. And the young come in and out until the young get too big to fit in mom and dad's mouth. And then you know what mom and dad do in the Sea of Galilee? they go down and they select a pebble off the bottom and they carry this stone around inside their mouths so that the babies can't get back in there and they have to learn to survive on their own. And so apparently there was one little tilapia cruising around the Sea of Galilee and he saw a shiny stone and dove down and picked it up and it happened to be a silver shekel. And Jesus knew, go cast your hook. What a beautiful story. Worship. This is a chapter about worship. And, and we read here about the altar of incense. So prayer is involved in worship. The second thing is that redemption is involved. involved in, you've got to be redeemed if you're going to worship. The, the third is this. You, you've got to be washed if you're involved in worship. Verse 17. The Lord said to Moses... You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And so when the priest was working and, and ministering and going about his daily duties within the tabernacle, this constant washing was happening. You gotta, you gotta wonder how many, how many times the high priest washed his hands and his feet throughout a day worshiping the Lord. I mean, it's like permanent dishpan hands, right? Permanent prune fingers and toes and that whole thing, all wilted. As he moved from task to task, uh, he would stop at this basin. He would wash. He would wash his hands and feet. And I just think pr probably a dozen times, more than a dozen times in a day. And that tells us that cleanliness is important to God when his people worship. One night when Jesus with his, was with his disciples, the gospels tell us that he took off his outer garment, he wrapped himself in a towel, and he got down and he began to wash his disciples' feet. One by one, he went from disciple to disciple until he came to Peter. And, and Peter was struggling with this whole thing. He, he said, I should be washing your feet, not you, me. And 
he kind of resisted Jesus and Jesus spoke to him and told him, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And so you know the story. Peter said, well, then not just my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. I mean, dump the whole thing over me, give me a bath essentially. And Jesus said to him, I have washed you already. You only need to have your feet washed and you are clean. See, we have been washed by Christ also. We've been washed in the blood. We've been cleaned and cleansed of our sin, cleansed by the blood of the lamb. But the reality is this, is that when you walk in this earth, your feet get dusty. When you walk in, in, in this world, your feet get dirty and they need to be cleaned. And the, the, the word of God actually presents itself to us. Jesus, the living word, the word of God is like water, the Bible says, with which a man can wash himself. Uh, Ephesians says, in fact, that a husband should learn to wash his wife with the word. We needed the daily washing of the word. We need to be washed even with the word of God before we worship. And so these different elements that are a part of worship, uh, the, re- the washing of the word, the redemption of the coin, uh, a prayer. Next we read of the anointing oil. It speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. The anointed may worship, I would say. Verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, of sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, uh, and 500 of cassia according to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hint of oil. So here's the recipe here it is right here. This is the, the divine recipe for the oil that is to be used in the tabernacle. Verse 25. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. You know when you worship oil in the scripture speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that. When, when you worship and you sense the presence of the Spirit of God, isn't that a sweet thing? It's sweet. And I just love the description of this. It's, it's this sweet smell of cinnamon and frankincense and all of these things. Or not frankincense yet. It's a little bit later on. But all these sweet things. And there is a sweetness that is involved in true worship. You can't, re- you can't manufacture that. It's not the recipe of a man. It's God's holy recipe. Nothing to do with man. In fact, the Lord says, you, you, you can't copy this. You can't use it anywhere else. It's only in worship of me. And when you experience, you know, the, the sweet smell of the Holy Spirit in worship, it is because it is nothing to do with man and everything to do with God. Imagine for a moment what the courtyard of the tabernacle might have smelled like. Before you consider the incense, consider first that animals were constantly being sacrificed there. Blood was being spilt all day long. Sacrifices were being burned. Flesh was burning before the, before the Lord. I mean, have you ever spent any time in a butcher shop? I don't like that smell. It's just, you know, that cold meat, ugh, that smell. I was thinking about it when, when I was growing up. One of my favorite smells as a kid was propane exhaust. Maybe I sniffed too much of it. I don't know. 
No, but, uh, you know, for years I would think, oh, oh, I love that smell. Love that smell. What is that? Why, why do I love that smell so much? And, you know, uh, one day I realized why I love that smell because it went back to my childhood in Seashelt where I would be all geared up and I'd be standing at the gate ready to go on the ice. And in those days, the ice rink didn't have glass. It was wrapped with metal, metal caging, right? And the Zamboni would go by and it'd be the cold smell of the rink and the propane exhaust of the Zamboni. And it was almost go time. And I would love the whiff of that exhaust. Never connected that for years. You know, whether it's propane exhaust or a butcher shop, uh, certain smells bring memories, don't they? And at the tabernacle, everything was to be anointed with this sweet smelling oil. God wanted a certain smell associated with his worship. He didn't want it copied anywhere else. This was a holy perfume. This was a smell that was only to be associated with the worship of God. And the tabernacle smelt like it. Those who were in the presence of God uh, smelt like it. it. It didn't smell like blood and meat there. It smelt like this anointing oil. The sweet smell of the presence of God. And, and God was so jealous for his people to associate that smell with him. He said this, if you make it, if you manufacture it, if you put it on, a, in, on a, a, an ordinary person or use it anywhere else, you will be cut off from your people. I'll, I'll strike you down. The same, the same story with the recipe for the incense. Look at verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. Now, now I'm going to take a, you, don't, you won't know whether I'm saying these right or not, and I won't know whether I'm saying these right or not. Uh, Stacte, Annika, and Galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended by the perfumer. So again, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. This is the recipe for the incense that was burned on that little altar. Verse 36. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense you shall, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any of it at, to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. You know, every time I read this passage, something flashes in my mind uh, and, it, and it makes me laugh and I, and I have to talk about it. It's TV preachers. You know, I don't know how many times I've, I've watched TV preachers and they say, we got this little vial of oil that we'd like to send you and if you would just send us some money, we'll send you this holy anointing oil that's made according to the biblical recipe and you can have it. And I think, you shysters, the Bible says don't copy the recipe. Don't you read the Bible? It says don't copy it. It is to be only in the presence of God. Whoever compounds anything like it or puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. And I just think, man, sheesh. You know, watch one of those guys next time, you know. You have nothing better to do. You know, as you think about the incense and the, this, this anointing oil, the question we should ask ourselves is this. What do our lives smell like? Do we smell like the sweet savor of Jesus? the sweet savor of those who have life in Jesus? Do we smell like those who have been worshiping Jesus? Does our life put off that fragrance? You know, the New Testament tells us that to those who are perishing, when the smell of Jesus is on us, they don't smell sweetness. They smell death. That it reminds them that they're in their sin and that they're still perishing. Uh, to those who love Jesus, to them, we smell like life when this fragrance is on our lives. It, we remind them that they have salvation. You know, you, you know the deal. Sometimes you're like visiting someplace or you're here or there and you meet someone you don't know and you begin to talk and you think, there's something about this person. I think they know Jesus. 
And sure enough, you ask, and yes, they're a believer because the fragrance of Jesus is on their lives and you smell it and you know it and you're familiar with it and it's to be on our lives as well. We come to chapter 31. The calling of spirit-filled men to be craftsmen. Verse 31, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge of all cra- and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood uh, to work in every craft. Wow, this guy is gifted by the Lord in craftsmanship and artistry. And he's to serve God in that. The name Bezalel actually means this. It means in the shadow of God. What a great name, eh? In the shadow of God. Verse six, and behold, we know that word behold as we've been coming through Exodus. Think about this, the Lord's saying. And think about this. I have appointed with him Aholab, I think, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan. Uh, that name Aholab uh, means father of the tent. What an interesting name. You know, if you're naming your kids, we talked about the meaning of our kids' names when we named them. Father of the tent never came up. Funny enough, you know. But it's, it's yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, but that's the name his parents named him. And it's interesting how God gifted him, how he was equipped and given skill for craftsmanship. His name means father of the tent. And what did he do? He helped build the tabernacle of God. He was equipped for the work. You know, God's calling is his enabling. God's calling is his enabling. You say, oh, I need the skill and then I'll go do. When God calls you, you're equipped. That's how it works. Verse six continues. I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent and the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all of its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all I have commanded you, they shall do. You know, it's interesting that the New Testament tells us that God's equipped his church, that he's equipped us for everything we need for life and godliness. That he's equipped the body of Christ for every work of service. And I'd ask you this morning, what has God equipped you with? What are the skills that God gave you? And how can you serve him with those skills? You don't have to, in the kingdom of God, you don't have to be something that you're not. Just serve God in the way that he's already gifted you and skilled you. Verse 12 continues, begins to talk about the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, did you notice that the Lord says the Sabbath is specifically a sign between himself, Yahweh, and Israel? Did you notice that? He said it's a sign between you and me. It's not a sign that was given to the other nations of the world. You know, when, when, when creation happened, yes, the Sabbath was for all. But, but 
as man rebelled against God, the Sabbath was given only to the, the children of Israel as a sign between them. Never given to the church. In fact, when we consider the crucifixion of Jesus, when was he dead? During the Sabbath. His body was in the tomb after his crucifixion. And he rose on the first day of the week. Sunday. And so from the very beginning, the church has always worshipped on Sunday. The first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. You know, some people want to keep the Sabbath. And I would tell you, go ahead, keep it. But that also means you have to work a six-day week. Did you see that there? <laughs> I'm going to go with the church system. How about you? Five-day work week, one day off, one day for worship, Sunday, the first day of the week. I think I prefer that. Verse 18. But it's interesting. You know, you just think about conversations that we have about Sabbath. Look, if you're going to keep it, you have to keep it in its whole entirety. And so, man, I'd rather have Jesus be my Sabbath like we talked about when we were back in the Ten Commandments. Jesus is my rest. I rest in him. Verse 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I, I mean, I don't know what to say. That's stinking cool, man. That is really cool. Two tablets written with the finger of God. Both sides. I mean, wouldn't you, have wouldn't you love to have seen those tablets? You know, to hold them? Whatever. these. How cool. Right from the top of Mount Sinai, written with the hand of God, Moses is going to bring them down. Of course, the Bible also teaches that God has written those same things on our heart. On every human heart, he has written those laws. And... You know, that's why we can, we can read the, the word of God and as followers of Jesus Christ who have been given the spirit of God, when we begin to read the word of God, our heart confirms it because God's written his word on our heart. We say, yes, what is being read here rings true to my heart. How awesome these stones. Hey, let's dive into chapter 32. I told you we we're gonna cover a lot of ground this morning. And we'll, we'll, we'll just go part way into it and we'll see what's happening down the bottom of the mountain while Moses is up top of the mountain meeting with the Lord. Chapter 32, one you're familiar with, the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Wow, how quickly the human heart turns. I just think from chapter 30 to chapter 32, this is the exact opposite. Chapter 30 is about worship, and this chapter is about turning away from true worship. And how quickly the human heart does that. I mean, for... We, we, we know the story of Moses. How long was Moses up the mountain on top of Mount Sinai? 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says that while he was up there, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. Amazing. He was sustained by the very presence of God. And when he came down the mountain, his face was glowing. We'll read about this eventually, that, that it, was, it glowed so much, you know, just, and I imagine probably the fragrance of heaven was on his life. It glowed so much that eventually Moses learned to cover his face after he'd been in the presence of God because people couldn't look at him. Reflecting the Lord. And so he's been gone by this point, not for 40 days yet, and they are turning from the Lord. And the mistake the Israelites make is that they think Moses led them out of Egypt. What? Moses? He's a man. God led you out of Egypt. The angel of the Lord went before you in a pillar of cloud and Moses was just the first one in the front of the line following the Lord. It wasn't Moses who led you, it was God. But they lost sight of that. Verse two, so Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in your ears, that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. 
the, the pierced ear, I mean, we, talk, we talked about this way back when. You know, back in that culture, it was associated with slavery. They were slaves. All of their ears were, were, were pierced. They, they would have left Egypt that way. And so gold earrings, uh, you know, it's also associated, you know, with pagan worship in that culture. And so I read this and I go, take off Aaron. Aaron! What the heck, Aaron? I mean, like, can you not read this and see the, you know, there's a single one little syllable word that you could have said. No! No! <laughs> and you know, you, you know, as followers of Jesus Christ, when it, when it remains b- being true in worship, sometimes you just need to say no! Verse 3, So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fat, this is the high priest now, remember this. And he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I, 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 seriously? What, Aaron? See, you can take the children out of Egypt, but it's hard to get the Egypt out of the children. Right? You and I know this. You can, you can take me out of the world to serve Jesus Christ, but it's hard to get the world out of this old fleshly life. As I, I, all of us battle with sin, battle with the old life, battle with the old man, battle with the old nature. And as we read this, I mean, it's shocking to see how quickly these people turn to idolatry. But what's more shocking is how quickly I turn to idolatry. How quickly you turn to idolatry. Verse 5 says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, before this golden calf. And, and, and this is here the, the root of something that is going to go on for generations in Israel. You know, eventually there's going to become a, a king, Jeroboam, way down the line, and he's going to make two of these golden calves again because he wants to control the people and he doesn't want them to turn from him and he's going to set them up in two cities. And it, it's, it, this is the root of, some, you know, idolatry is a little seedling that grows into something nasty and it needs to be cut off. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Seriously, Aaron? And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. The crazy thing is, is Aaron takes this whole thing and he associates it with worshiping God. It's an idol. Do not make, cast images of me. Do not, you know, fashion things with your hands. And this story would, be almost unbelievable except you can look throughout all of history and see the slide of the church into apostasy. You know it in your own life how easy you slide into idolatry. We know that over the generations the church and it's happening in our day and age slides into apostasy and really I'd call it in a lot of ways syncretism where they try to amalgamate different religious beliefs and and structures, and cultural practice, and then they say, yeah, and we're worshiping God. No, you're not. God said, don't worship me that way. Aaron, you can't make this and then say you're worshiping God. No, no, no. This is a mixture of idolatrous worship that has its roots back in Egypt for these people. Uh, this, This has its roots back in Egypt where God spoke 10 judgments and poured out 10 plagues and led his people out of there so that they would leave that life behind. And there was serious immorality involved here. The King James says in um, one of the verses that we're not going to quite get to this morning that, that they were naked. I mean, there was immorality happening. The people rose up to play uh, is recorded here and it means this. They just ca- they had cast off restraint. You know, we have the spirit of God that restrains us, that directs us. They, they cast off any restraint. They cast off what they knew of the word of God. They cast it off and they began to do their thing. Syncretism. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
wrap it up quick here. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold is a stiff necked people. And now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Something happens here in this. I mean, you can sense the sarcasm of the Lord. He says this to Moses, go down to your people. The people you let out of, you let out of Egypt, Moses. You go down to your people and and see what they're doing and know this, that they're a stick neck people and I'm going to cast them down. And I mean, you, you got to love the sarcasm of, of the Lord as he just says, they're your people. They're not my people. This isn't the behavior of my people. You can have them, Moses. They're all yours. And as the Lord calls them a stiff neck people, he says, leave, leave me alone now and I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy them and I'll do this, Moses. Out of you, I will take and I will make a great nation. The Lord did that for Abraham. He, he took one man out of the Ur of Chaldeans and he promises I'll make your descendants like the stars of the sky. And for Moses, the Lord right here is offering the same thing. I, I actually think there's a, temp, a real temptation here for him. Yeah, you're right. Kill him. Take me and make me something great on your behalf, God. And, but what happens here is Moses saves millions of lives, literally. He begins to intercede and he says, verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great, uh, with great power and a mighty hand? I read that, I think, yeah, God wrote the, the law with a finger, but it was a mighty hand that brought his people out of Egypt. Moses says, here the Lord, they're not my people, they're your people. And so it's kind of funny because God doesn't want them and Moses doesn't want them. <laughs> this is really though, one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. I mean, we're not going to dive in here, but this prayer literally saves the lives of millions of people. You have to think about that. Literally, God says they're done. And Moses says, no, please God. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel. He doesn't say Jacob. He says Israel. Remember the man that you redeemed and you changed his name. And his name means he's governed by God. Remember that you govern them. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You know, I think, man, you know, Moses was up the mountain and he's having this time with God. Was God surprised when down the mountain his children were turning to idolatry? I, I don't think God was surprised. The Bible says that he, he knows what's in the heart of a man. He knows the propensity of a, a, a person's heart to turn from him. That God does not entrust himself into the, the heart, of, uh, into the hands of, of man unless he gives himself as a gift. And, and so the Lord is not surprised and so I would say this, as Moses is coming down the mountain, this is not so much a test for the Lord as it is a test for the man that God is raising up who will lead the children further into the desert. God is raising Moses as a leader. And, and Moses has come from the presence of God. His heart is in tune with the Lord. And I would say God's prodding him. He's testing him. And, and Moses responds with a prayer that reveals a heart for God and a heart for people. It's beautiful. Verse 15. Moses comes down the mountain. 
Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, the tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said, there is the noise of war in the camp. He's, he's a soldier. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Uh, Moses goes down in history, the only man to break all 10 commandments at one time. <laughs> Verse 20, he took the calf that he had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Look, if your God can be burned with fire, I don't know why you serve that God. If your God can be ground to powder, he's not a God worth serving. If you can drink your God, man, you're in trouble. Uh, verse 21. We'll go to 24 and end. And Moses said to Aaron, what did the people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. You're a man who's late in his 80s. Seriously? Like that's the best story you could come up with, Aaron? We threw gold into the fire and out walked a calf? I mean, you're a liar, high priest. The high priest, a liar. And, and, you know, we just read, he fashioned that calf with his own hands. He took it and, and he fashioned it. But this is the spiritual leader of the people. And he's no spring chicken. He's in his 80s and listen to this excuse. And I guess we should ask ourselves this this morning. Do we make lame excuses for our sin? I don't know. I just threw it in the fire. Really? Your hands fashioned it. Your hands formed the idol. Your knees bowed to worship it. Your hands offered the sacrifice that was presented. It just walked out of the fire. You know, I can't help but remember some of the things that we saw about true worship in chapter 30. False worship in chapter 32, true worship in chapter 30. Prayer is involved in worship. Redemption is involved in worship. Washing is involved in worship. The sweet presence of, of the smell of the Holy Spirit marks genuine, true worship. And it was all missing. Here it was all missing. And so this morning, you know, I, I just challenge you. Do we make lame excuses for our sin? You know, before the Lord own it. Aaron will be held accountable here. And before God, he will repent and he will be restored in the presence of God. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. Why don't you guys stand with me as they come?